Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to help us now so that we would trust your word and that we would be able to answer those who are against us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of 1 Samuel and it's an exciting time in uh, the, the life of Israel Israelite history. Uh, But where does this land in Israelite history? If you're not familiar with the content of your Old Testaments, you may be saying, who is this David and who is Saul and why is this going on? Uh, So a bit of context for you, of course, uh, a recap of the the Old Testament. You start with Genesis. God makes the heavens and the earth and he makes Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve, you eventually get a man called Abraham. From Abraham, you eventually get the 12 tribes of Israel. They end up in Egypt under Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh, of course, enslaves them. And then they are led out of Egypt by Moses uh, with all the plagues that accompany Moses. And then they go into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. They're ruled by different judges for a time. And the last of those judges is Samuel, and we saw that he actually, uh, Samuel died in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel last week. And then we see there's this change that's taking taking place, uh, that there's a a, a monarchy begun in Israel, that there's going to be a king over Israel. And of course, the first king of Israel is Saul, and then we see the second king will be David. But of course, there's a transition that takes place where Saul is still on the throne and David is not on the throne. But Saul is aware that David is ascending towards that throne and so Saul has been trying to kill David and so what has David been doing well he's been running around in the desert trying to avoid being killed by Saul and we've seen repeated attempts against his life and so what happens in chapter 27 well in chapter 27 we read in verse 1 that David leaves the land of Israel we read in verse 1 but David thought to himself one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul the best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So, Of course, in the land of Canaan, you've got other tribal groups, and the Philistines were the enemies of the Israelites. And we've seen that again and again in the book of 1 Samuel, that they've been fighting, they've been having wars against the Philistines, the the people of Israel. And so now David is actually going over and living within the Philistine territory. So... To benefit from this passage of Scripture, I think we have to to get the greatest benefit from it. I think we have to remember what 1 Samuel is all about. What is the purpose of 1 Samuel? I mean, there are many purposes. Of course, it's edify us in many different ways. But one of the big purposes of 1 Samuel is to defend the Davidic throne. I've mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that if we see that David is the rightful heir to the throne, then we, of course, know that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne, and therefore we, as citizens of the kingdom of God, submit to King Jesus. Whereas if Saul's family is the rightful heir to the throne, then we are wrong to submit to Jesus as a descendant of David. And so again and again we see in 1 Samuel that there's this careful intention to make sure that we understand that David is the rightful heir of the throne of Israel, and therefore Jesus is the rightful heir of the throne of Israel, and therefore we are rightful citizens of the kingdom as people who are under the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is 1 Samuel 27 helpful in making clear that David is the rightful heir of Israel? Why is this chapter included? Well, it's really here to give us a defence for this time that people would have known about David's life where he was living amongst the enemy. He was living amongst the Philistines. Imagine what people could do with the knowledge of what we see in 1 Samuel 27. 
the things that happened in 1 Samuel 27, if they were known in Israel at that time, wouldn't they have affected David's claim to the throne? What do we see here that would be so damaging to David? Well, the fact that he lived amongst the enemy. He lived amongst the enemy in the royal city of Gath. We see that in verse 2. Verse 2 of 1 Samuel 27. It would be helpful for you to have your Bibles open before you this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 2, it says, So David and the 600 men with him, with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. Here we see him settling, not just in an outskirts of the Philistine territory, we see him settling in the royal city, the city of Gath. And what else do we see eventually that David does while he's in the Philistine territory? We see that he gets his own city, his own Philistine city. In verse 5 we read, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favour in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day Achish gave him Ziklag and has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David not only lived amongst the Philistines, he actually ran a Philistine city. And what else do we read in this passage? Well, we read that he wasn't there for a brief transition. He was there for an extended period of time. He wasn't there for a holiday. We read in verse 7, David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. He was really behaving as a Philistine citizen of that time, during that time. And then what else? Well, we read that David, during this time, was reported to have personally attacked Israel and Israel's allies. Look with me at verse 10. When Achish, that's the king of Gath, asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah. Judah being the, the, his own tribe, and uh, Negev meaning south. The Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And these are uh, nations that are allied with Israel. In this passage, we see that reports were getting out that David by his own words, was attacking Israelites and their, the Israelites and their allies. And what else do we see? Well, we see that the Philistine king trusted David. He liked David. I mean, he gave him the city of Ziklag, and he thought that David was odious to Israel. We read in verse 12, Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. It is not as though David's living in the Philistine area, uh, maybe he's living in the royal city, but he doesn't really know the king. He's not a really a part of the Philistines. But here we see that the king actually really likes David. The king Achish really likes him. And we even see that David is brought in to the Philistine army to make war against Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 28. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. He's not just roaming around in Philistine cities trying to be safe there. He's actually, David has joined the Philistine army. And what section does he play? What section does he enroll in in the Israelite army? Look with me at verse 2. David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. And Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David is living in the Philistine area. He's got his own town. He's on good terms with the king of the Philistines, 
He's part of the Philistine army as it's going off to war against Israel. And within that army, he is actually functioning as the bodyguard of the king of the Philistines. Wouldn't all these facts have hurt David's claim to be the king of Israel down the track? Imagine if a candidate for prime minister of Australia had done something similar. Imagine if they had lived in a nation that was at war with Australia. Imagine that this person had ruled an enemy town. I'll get you to, you can think of whatever nation you might think. Uh, I was, I was going to drop a name, but I, and you never know uh, how offensive that may be to certain people. Uh, but you think of a nation, figurative, or maybe one that's actually there, that's an enemy of Australia. Now you think of someone running for political office who actually lived there who lived in that enemy town while it was at war with Australia. And while they were there, they ruled an enemy town. They actually had possession of a whole town under their leadership. They've got prime ministerial experience, and it's actually of another, another town of the enemy. And while they were there, they lived there for a whole year and four months. They were clearly not on holidays, taking a vacation over there. They were a part of the enemy territory. And while living there, they were reported to have personally destroyed certain Australian towns. Now, it's harder for us to imagine because we don't have a border that is easily crossed. Of course, we're surrounded by water. But imagine that this person who's running to be Prime Minister of Australia has crossed the Australian border, come in, wiped out a few towns, and then gone back to the enemy nation. And imagine that that person, while they lived in the enemy nation, didn't live in the backwoods of that nation, but had a personal relationship with the enemy king and was enrolled in the enemy army when it was marching out to war against Australia. And while that person was in the enemy army, they were actually part of the bodyguard of the enemy king. Now imagine that person then coming back to Australia and saying, I want to be Prime Minister of Australia. Imagine that taking place. Would you vote for such a person to be your Prime Minister? When you knew the history that I've just described, Imagine the smear campaign that an opposition could run on television screens about that person. They try their hardest, the opposition, to run smear campaigns about candidates. Imagine what they could do with this kind of material. Imagine the conspiracy theories that could run rampant about, oh, that person, his real allegiance is to that enemy nation. And there would be this, these facts that are undeniable, but then you could... Make up all kinds of extra material on top of that, which would be hard to cut through with the Australian public. So what is the narrator doing in 1 Samuel chapter 27? What's he doing by including this information here, by 1 Samuel 27 being here in the Bible? Well, he's giving a defence of David. He's giving a defence of David and his actions that took place at this time. He answers the question, why did David live among the Philistines at all? Because these events would have been spread across the Israelite territories. They would have known of these things. And so it's being addressed here and it's being answered. Why did David go into the, Israel into the Philistine territory? Well, we see it's to save his own life. We read this in verse 1. 
But David thought to himself, one of these days, I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. He was going away to preserve his body in some way. And did it work? Well, yes, it did. In verse 4, what do we read? When Saul, that's the first king of Israel, was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. It was a strategy that worked. Now, it's easy for us to judge David for trying to save his life by going into Philistine territory. People say, oh, he should have trusted God and remained in Israel. And many commentators, as I was reading this week, and sermons that I read on this particular passage, they really go to town on David for unbelief at this point in time. They really haul him over the coals and say, look, we learn all good things about David in, this, in these books, but there are things about David, and there are warts to his body, and we should be aware of this, and we should really uh, make sure that we don't make the mistakes that David did. But we've seen, as we've been looking at this passage and this book together, we've seen the attacks that were made on David personally by Saul. We saw Saul hurl spears repeatedly at David when David was in his presence. We've seen him chase David repeatedly. We've seen Israelites betray David. Ziff did it twice. The Ziphites did it twice. And we saw that uh, when he, was, he saved Keilah, the town of Keilah, from, uh, from enemies, that then David inquired of the Lord and said, will the Ke people of Keilah uh, betray me to Saul? And the answer was from the Lord, yes, they will. David had just saved these Israelites and he gets a word from the Lord that they will actually betray him to Saul. We've seen this happen again and again. And what might have been the final straw for David to leave? Well, something that occurred in 1 Samuel 26, the death of Samuel. Samuel the prophet, the only one who could probably stand up to Saul, is dead. And so David leaves Israel. Would you blame anyone if they moved to an enemy nation for security reasons like this? Would you blame them? Imagine that our prime minister personally shot at you when you were in his presence. Imagine that he engaged his best soldiers to come and hunt you down while other Aussies betrayed you. Every time you went somewhere, they would call up Saul and call up the prime minister and say, he's here, he's here, come and get him. Imagine that was happening to you. Now, it's all very well for others to say, you've got to have faith, Joel. You've got to have faith. While they sit in their armchairs and sip coffee and tea. You should have had more faith, David. They're not the ones who are being chased personally by the king, being betrayed by other Israelites. But what about the reports that David attacked Israel and was part of the Philistine army? Surely this is a reason why David should not be king of Israel. Well, we see that while he was in Philistine territory, he was actually enriching Israel the whole time. How? Well, we actually see that he's attacking the enemies of Israel, which means that he's protecting Israel he wasn't attacking Israel. No, he was attacking the enemies of Israel, which was protecting the Israelites. And we see that in verse 8. Verse 8 tells us who he's killing. Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gershurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. 
From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending from Shur and Egypt. What is David doing while he's in the land of the Philistines? He's not attacking Israel. Instead, he's attacking enemies of Israel. And he's even upholding the Lord's command that was given to King Saul to destroy the Amalekites, which Saul did not do as he should in 1 Samuel chapter 15. David is being a true king of Israel by destroying the Lord's enemies. And while he's doing that, he's actually benefiting God's people. And he didn't quite lie here. There's lots of commentaries that go to town on David at this point as well for his unbelief and his lying to King Achish. And so they say that he lied when he, Achish asked him in verse 10, where did you go raiding today? David would say against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of Jeremiah or against the Negev of the Kenites. And so it seems like he is raiding these people. He's raiding the people of Judah. He's raiding the people of Jeremiah or the Kenites. But he's not saying that he's actually against them. Uh, one translation of the actual, the LXX, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that he said to Achish, on the south of Judea and on the south of Jesmega and on the south of the Kenizzite. So he's, yes, he's, he's, he's attacking people in those regions, but who is he attacking? It's the enemies of the, people, of the Israelites in those regions. And so he's giving the impression to Achish that he's attacking Israelites. But yes, he is true. He is going into those territories. But while he's in those territories, he's actually destroying Israel's enemies and therefore enriching Israel. And while he's in the Philistine territory, what else did he do? He actually took over a Philistine city permanently. What city am I talking about? Ziklag. Verse 6. So on, the day, on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. He actually took a whole Philistine territory over to Israelites' possession by his time that he was in the Philistines. But what are we to do about David being a bodyguard for Achish? What are we to do about it? He, didn't he sign up to be Achish's bodyguard? Well, it's an ambiguous reply that's given in verse 2 of chapter 28. David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Now, what's David mean by that? Does he mean that at some point in the Israelite war with, uh, between the Philistines and the Israelites, that he's going to turn on Achish and you're going to see what I can do? He's not saying, yes, yes, I'm out to kill those Israelites with you. It's an ambiguous reply. And so what are we to do with 1 Samuel 27? Well, we're to see that we should defend David's claim to the throne. He hasn't done anything that's ultimately treasonous to Israel. Instead, while he was over in Philistine territory, which was there because clearly one Israelite and a whole army was against him, the king of Israel, he was actually enriching Israel by being in Philistine territory. And so therefore, if, Jesus, uh, if David is the rightful king of Israel, then what does that mean about Jesus? He is the rightful king of Israel. We cannot say that Jesus should not be king of Israel because David technically shouldn't be king of Israel because he was treasonous to Israel back when he was alive on this earth. And so we should affirm Christ as the rightful king of Israel because 1 Samuel 27 affirms that David is the rightful king of Israel. And what else can we learn from 1 Samuel chapter 27 then? Well, I think we can learn to defend Christ the King from ill reports that are made about him. 
we see 1 Samuel 27 that there were things that were said that would have been said about David that would have damaged his reputation as king. And when we look to the New Testament, we see that a good portion of the New Testament is taken up giving a defence against smear campaigns of the Lord Jesus Christ. What criticisms are made of King Jesus? Well, let's consider some of them now. There were concerns about his teaching. There were concerns about his teaching in the New Testament. We read in John chapter 7, verse 12, Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him, that's Jesus. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. Jesus was accused of being a deceiver. And so what does the New Testament do? It does the same kind of thing that 1 Samuel 27 does. It gives a defense of Jesus. The accusation is that Jesus is a deceiver. And what does that mean? He's siding with the enemy. What enemy? Satan himself. Satan is a great deceiver. Anyone who's a deceiver is part of Satan's kingdom. And so what does the New Testament do? We see that Jesus is defended as one who taught faithfully. He taught scripture faithfully. We see that he upholds the law. You can read passages that give Jesus' teaching at great length that show that he is in accordance with God's law. And then we see that people accepted the teaching. Mark 1 verse 22 says the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So we see the New Testament is defensive, apologetic of Jesus' claim to be king, that you cannot say that his teaching was deceptive. What else, what other ill reports are out there about Jesus? Well, there's concerns about Christ's miracles. And we saw that in the Bible reading that we had before from Luke chapter 11, where Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute, and when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. What's the accusation? Jesus is part of the enemy kingdom. Just like the accusation that David was part of the enemy kingdom with the Philistines. Jesus is part of the enemy kingdom. He's driving out demons by the prince of demons. But what do we see in the New Testament? We see an apologetic. We see a defense given for Jesus' claim to the throne. A defense of Christ's power. Luke 11 verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can the kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. What do we see in the New Testament? A defense of Jesus' power. That it's not an unclean power, it's a clean power. It's the finger of God that is at work in Jesus. And it's absolute stupidity to say that a demon would drive out another demon. It's a smear campaign against Christ as King of Israel. What other ill reports are out there about the Lord Jesus? Well, there's concerns about his obedience to the law, particularly the Sabbath. We read in John chapter 9, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. He can't be from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. What's the accusation? Well, they're saying that he's siding with Satan. Again, he's part of the enemy kingdom. Why? Because Satan is someone who does not keep the law. And so if Jesus does not keep the law, then he must be part of Satan's kingdom. And so what do we see in the New Testament? We see a defense. We see a defense of Jesus' monarchy by showing that 
he does keep the Sabbath. What do we see in Matthew chapter 12, verse 10? Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He shows that when he does good on the Sabbath, he is in keeping with the law. He's in keeping with the spirit of the law. And so therefore, he is one who upholds the law. And so therefore, he is the rightful king of Israel. What other ill reports are there in the New Testament? We see that there's ill reports about his teaching. There's ill reports about his miracles and the power that he uses. There's ill reports about his keeping of the law. Well, what's the greatest accusation that is made against the Lord Jesus? It's blasphemy. Blasphemy and deserving, therefore, of a shameful, accursed death being hung on a tree. And we see that at his trial. At the Lord Jesus' trial in Matthew 26, verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. What's the accusation? They're saying that Jesus is part of an enemy kingdom. He is blaspheming God, and that's Satan's work to blaspheme the living God. And therefore, he should be put to death. But what do we see in the New Testament? We see a defense of Christ as the Christ, as the Son of God. One of the clearest declarations of it is in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul says, who the through, speaking of Jesus, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus so important? Many reasons but it declares that Jesus is not blaspheming when he says he is the Christ, the Son of God. He really is the Christ, the Son of God, and therefore it is not blasphemy for him to claim to be the Christ, the Son of God. So to benefit from the New Testament, we have to remember a main purpose of it. And what is that? It's the defence of Christ's throne. A defence of Christ's throne. Why do we need to remember that? Well, we don't understand the revolution that it was for the people to move from Old Covenant to New Covenant, to have Jesus as their king. Just like in the Old Testament, it was such a hard thing for the Israelites to move from judges to king, to move from King Saul to King David. A big, big change for them. To go from the tribe of Benjamin to the tribe of Judah for having your monarchy. And so if we want to understand 1 Samuel, we have to understand the context of the time and how difficult it was for people to transition from one king to another. And it's the same in the New Testament. It is really hard for the Jewish people to transition from the temple and all its ceremonial law to Christ and as the fulfillment of the temple and all the ceremonial law, and to have him as their king. And we don't understand always the, the difficulty it is for unbelievers to become believers. We think it's as simple as, oh, all you have to do is make a decision for Christ. You can do it. Come on, trust in Jesus. It is really difficult for them to bow the knee and stop being their king and to have Jesus as their king. 
And so people will find any reason to attack Jesus. You look through the New Testament, they're grasping at straws all the time, whether it's his teaching, whether it's his miracles, whether it's his keeping of the law, whether it's blasphemy, and that he's not actually the Christ, the Son of God. It's crazy the lengths that people will go to to try and push Jesus out of their lives. They will even affirm his miracles. It's crazy. We are just reading in family worship, uh, John chapter 12, last night. And it's interesting how we saw again, the, the, the religious leaders, they want to kill Lazarus. Why do they want to kill Lazarus? Because so many Jews are believing in Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so if we kill Lazarus, then people will stop believing in Jesus. The fools! This guy has just raised someone from the dead. Shouldn't you be trusting in him too, along with everybody else? No, 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 no. What we'll do is we'll kill Lazarus and we'll kill Jesus. So we don't have to surrender our lives to Jesus. The smear campaign is out there all the time against Jesus. Why? People do not want to have him as king. Just like people did not want to have David as king. And we'll see that as we continue our series through 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel. And so we cannot believe the smear campaign for one second. But instead we must affirm Christ as king. Why? If you refuse to accept Christ as the rightful king of Israel, you will only gain eternal shame. You will only gain eternal shame. It was dangerous to be an Israelite back in the time of David and to believe that David joined the Philistines and therefore he's an enemy of Israel. Why? Because David was the rightful king of Israel and eventually he was on the throne. And if you were someone who opposed David and said, oh, no, 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 he's a Philistine, it would be shameful and your life would be in danger once he's on the throne. And so it's even more dangerous to believe that Jesus is satanic. What's the unforgivable sin? Many would say the unforgivable sin is to say that Jesus drove out demons by a demon. That he was someone who was representing Satan on earth. It is an unforgivable sin. And what happens to those who are unforgiven? Eternal shame in hell. Eternal suffering in hell. It was dangerous for people to say that David was a Philistine. It is even more dangerous to say that Jesus is satanic. He will come on the clouds one day. You will see him returning as king over all. And it will be either you accept and you have him come as your king, or you have him come as your enemy, who, and he will put you to eternal shame for not affirming him as king. So if you have not trusted Christ as king, do so now. If you've never trusted in Christ as your king, do so now before he comes to judge and it is too late. It may be tonight. It may be in a year. Do it now. Don't delay and then faithfully defend Christ as king by the Holy Spirit's power, arguing against false accusations. Defend Christ as king. And rejoice. Rejoice that he is king. 
Rejoice that, like David, Christ's actions that appeared to be siding with the enemy were actually enriching God's people all along. All Christ's work of teaching and miracles and keeping of the law and his claims to be Messiah and King, for some people it appears to be evil, but it really is working for the enriching of God's people. Just as David, while he was amongst the Philistines and seemed to be attacking God's people, he was actually enriching Israel all along. And so we can rejoice. We can rejoice in his teaching. We can rejoice in his miracles. We can rejoice in his observance of the law. We can rejoice in his claims to be Christ and the Son of God because he is. And he will one day come and he will take us to be with him in his kingdom. And all our enemies will be vanquished. And we will enjoy peace and prosperity for all eternity. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we praise you as the rightful king of Israel. We thank you for your scriptures, which are sufficient to answer all attacks on your holy name. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our doubts and our unbelief and not defending you as we should. May you grant us much of the Holy Spirit's help to trust in you more and to rejoice in your labours to enrich your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.